Every move you make, every step you take, I'll be watching you, right? From Google to Amazon to Facebook to Apple and so many other, that's just the big four tech companies, but it's the way our data is then commodified into, into profit has been called a stalker economy, right? Not unlike what, you know, it's, is that a love song or is that creepy, right? <laughs> you know, it's creepy. Uh, <laughs> so, um, the late Alan Weston was a professor of public um, professor of public law and government at Columbia University, and in the late 1960s and early 1970s, he wrote two major books on privacy. And it's no coincidence that both those book titles included variations of the word "free." In 1967, he wrote "Privacy and Freedom." In 1972, he wrote "Data Banks in a Free Society." As we explore the topic of privacy, keep that word freedom in mind, because it's more important than might be initially clear. Privacy is about much more than what you do when, you, when no one is watching or when you think no one's watching. Uh, privacy is deeply a part of what is required to be a free people in a free and open society. Dr. Weston's research was widely seen as the first significant work on consumer data privacy and data protection. His books prompted U.S. privacy legislation and helped launch global privacy movements in many democratic countries in the 60s and the 70s. Privacy, as we will come to see, is central to the liberal democratic tradition generally and to our UU tradition in particular. One classic definition of privacy is from the 19th century British philosopher John Stuart Mill, in particular, on liberty. I don't know if any of you read that book on liberty. It's actually great. I mean, uh, you may, if you disagree, let me know afterwards. It's fine. But I remember reading on liberty in college, and this is probably an early sign that I was to be a UU. I was just like, this is amazing. I really love that book. Uh, But here's a quote from it. Mill wrote that the sole end for which humankind is warranted, either individually or collectively, so the only reason for interfering with the liberty or action of another human is self-protection. That the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against their will is to prevent harm for others. That your perception of that person's own good, either physically or morally, for Mill at least, was not a sufficient warrant. It's very simple. This is what's summarized in the quote some of you have heard me say before, that one person's right to swing their fist, you can do that all day long, but it ends when it hits my face, right, or hits someone else. It ends at assault, right? In the liberal tradition, remember that Latin word, uh, liber comes from the Latin root liber, meaning freedom. So the the liberal tradition. This division is often known as the public-private split. In private, you are free to do anything you want as long as it doesn't impact someone else. As soon as it starts impacting other people, you're in public and you need to be accountable. You know, accountable for the the public good, the common good. What our UU six principle ultimately calls the goal of world community, with peace, liberty, and justice not merely for some, but for all. Today, however, modern technology has advanced to the point where any genuine privacy is really increasingly elusive, if we're really honest about it. Companies like Google—they know so much about us from all the stuff we've 
Googled, right, in their search engine from all the times we've used their maps. Uh, if you're wearing a smartwatch, I mean, that's really incredible in some ways, or carrying a smart, how many have, people have a smartphone on their person or a smartwatch, right? So you can get incredible data, incredible usefulness from that, but it's also creating incredible amounts of data about you. Um, you know, things like I can say, hey, Siri, at any time, and my phone has been listening the whole time for me to, and allegedly not recording any of that. Um, probably not, but they could, you know, that, that switch can happen really subtly. Uh, all the things you've ever ordered on uh, Amazon, all the things you've liked on Facebook. You know, many studies have shown that when you, when you ask someone's spouse about them and when you ask Facebook about them, Facebook is way more accurate about what you actually like because they, they have the concrete data. Your spouse has various impressions about you. So there's just all this vast amount of data being collected about us, even in or about our, even our most intimate spaces and times. Uh, so it's what's sometimes being called the data industrial complex. And for our modern age, Dr. Weston offers us this working definition of privacy. Privacy is about the claim of individuals, groups, or institutions to determine for themselves, not for someone else, but to determine for themselves when, how, and to what extent information about them is communicated to others. To determine for yourself when, how, and to what extent information is communicated to others. Weston, however, is no longer with us. He died about five years ago in 2013, and my favorite contemporary guide to this intersection of technology and privacy is Bruce Schneier. Has any of you read any of his books? Really fascinating. Has a blog, Schneier on Security. He's an internationally renowned security technologist who, among many appointments, is a fellow at Harvard University's Center for the Internet and Society. The best introduction I've found to his perspective is his 2015 book, not David and Goliath, but Data and Goliath, The Hidden Battles to Collect Your Data and Control Your World. But I also recommend his latest book that's titled Click Here to Kill Everybody, uh, Security and Survival in a Hyperconnected World. It's about the promise and peril of having so many things on the internet, right? Having you know, cars that are increasingly on the internet, having water supply connected to the internet, having missiles connected to the internet, right? Any of that stuff, the more connected you are, you're also vulnerable to being hacking, hacked. Part of what I appreciate about Schneier is he is neither anti-technology nor anti-surveillance, but he urges us to be more informed and skillful about both. Consider, for instance, just how much data is being collected about us almost constantly. There's way more to say about this than I have time to get into this morning, but I'll give you a few examples. With smartphones, it used to be with um, cell phones that cell towers were kind of could tell where you are within about 2,000 feet. Now uh, the GPS on your smartphone knows where you are within 16 to 27 feet and is constantly recording that and reporting it back to various places depending on what your smartphone is and what apps you're using and all of that. With a high degree of accuracy, our cell phones reveal where we are at all times, where we work, who we spend time with. Uh, often the way we use them clues them into when we wake up, when we go to sleep, and because almost everyone has a cell phone, they know who we sleep with. 
The rabbit hole, however, goes much deeper. Um, purchase anything in a store, if you're, unless you're using cash, you're producing more data. Or because you're in public, there's probably a video camera in the store. There are much more cameras outside, monitoring buildings, sidewalks, roadways, other public spaces, get into a car. You generate yet more data if your car is at all modern, and especially the more modern it is. Uh, modern cars are loaded with computers, producing data on your speed, how hard you're pressing the pedal, the steering, what the position the steering wheel is in, and much more. Much of that is automatically recorded in a black box recorder, useful for figuring out what happened in an accident. But a lot of that is increasingly also communicated to the car company. So there are times when, like, the president of Ford Motor Company, you know, said the quiet part loud. You know, he said that we know when you're breaking the law. You know, they, they basically know when pe- where you are with your car, if it's connected to GPS, and whether you're speeding. And they aren't telling the police that, but they do actually have that data the more modern your car is. Not long ago, someone would have to pay a private investigator a small fortune to collect the data that we're just funneling uh, out every day. And... Uh, and now there's just this increasing number of consumer products about that. The rabbit hole goes at least one more level deeper still. Corporations are by all means interested in your specific personal data in order to target you more creepily, in my mind, for advertising. You've probably experienced various degrees of that. Uh, but they're also interested in the trends that show what everyone's data taken together show us, uh, collected and compared on a mass scale, what's sometimes called metadata. On one hand, important changes can come from this big data that are good about what we humans really do or think and can actually equip us to improve our lives. I mean, I think there really are ways that phones or watches, you know, there's incredible health benefits that can, and other benefits that can come from that. Um, Netflix, you know, can increasingly give us, they know what we really watch, not what we tell people we watch, what we really watch, right, and can give us incredibly specific shows for various slices of the demographic. On the other hand, that same level of access to our personal data can and has been used by corrupt corporations and by authoritarian governments for manipulation, for intimidation, and for social control, and that could get worse if we're not careful. Consider the vast amount of data that Google has collected from us about what has been Googled over the years, um, what's been typed into Gmail, and that's not just people that have Gmail accounts. Anytime you've emailed Somebody with a Gmail account, they have access to both sides of that correspondence. Um, everything you put into Google Maps, all the other Google products, and this is true also for the other companies, but here's an example in why I bring up Google, that Google CEO Eric Schmidt, again saying the quiet part loud in 2010, said, we know where you are, we know where you've been, and we pretty much know what you're thinking. Uh, we can take that confession from our Google overlords who mostly want to exploit us for our profits and turn it up to 11 when we consider that in 2014, uh, former NSA and CIA director Michael Hayden said, we kill people based on metadata. And that's part of how we target people, you know, who are in most cases accused of terrorism. But it makes me think a little bit, Ah, you know, uh, suffice it to say that it does really matter who has access to our data and what they are empowered to legally do with it. Not everything legal is ethical, right? That's another whole discussion. 
Uh, And defending our right to determine for ourselves how, when, and to what extent information about us is shared with others and how long it's kept. I mean, part of this whole dynamic is that as technology has advanced, it's just not that, it's, it's now feasible in a way it's never been before to just vacuum up all the data and just store it all, just infinitely. And part of what Schneier, I think, helpfully pushes back against is part of what we're, we're allegedly doing it for surveillance to keep us safe, but we're really just creating bigger and bigger haystacks that don't necessarily make it easier to find the needles. So he would say we're spending too much on collecting everyone's data and not enough on investigation. But I also want to be sure to get to the ways in which this is a very significant part of our own Unitarian Universalist history. There's a lot of examples I could give. We could look back with, like, John Adams and the Alien and Sedition Acts really early on. We could look at the free speech and privacy stuff around World War I. We could look at reproductive justice struggle and the ways in which Roe versus Wade absolutely turned on privacy. That's what that reproductive right is built on. But the specific case that I want to invite us to explore about today is that in uh, 2013, the First Unitarian Church of Los Angeles, some of you may remember this story, sued the National um, Security Administration, the NSA, over its domestic spying, claiming that its surveillance of church members' telephone calling habits discouraged them from banding together to advocate for political causes, and that that was in violation of the First Amendment, freedom of speech, First Amendment freedom of assembly, as well as Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable search and seizures. You can, if you read the Fourth Amendment, go back and read that sometime, or you may remember, it was specifically written in response to what was happening at the time of general warrants being issued, so that you could just go search someone anytime, just go on a fishing expedition. So we have that specific language in our Fourth Amendment about probable cause, and you have to have a specific warrant for a specific time and place, not just going on fishing expeditions. So let me tell you just a little bit about the background of why First Unitarian Los Angeles for that particular lawsuit. In the 1950s and the 1960s, so keeping in mind early 1950s, McCarthyism was going on, uh, First Unitarian Los Angeles was under FBI surveillance because its longtime minister, Reverend Stephen Fritchman, was suspected of being a communist. And maybe he was, full disclosure. Uh, that's a point of contention. Uh, we don't actually know the answer to that question. Uh, but uh, also around this time, the government, that congregation was already on the government's radar because in 1952, California had passed a, constitution, a state constitutional amendment requiring religious organizations to sign a loyalty oath in order to keep tax-exempt status. Along with several other churches, First Unitarian Church refused. It lost its tax-exempt status until 1958 when the Supreme Court ruled that loyalty oath was unconstitutional. You can look that up, First Unitarian Church versus Los Angeles. So when UU World and other um, researchers have looked back into that time period, the 50s and the 60s of First Unitarian Los Angeles, an initial Freedom of Information Act request of the FBI's records of First Unitarian Los Angeles turned up more than 5,000 pages. Fritchman or the church came up in FBI documents that also mentioned the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, uh, Albert Einstein, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, the American Friends Service Committee, that's the Quakers, uh, to name just a few other people who were subject of FBI files who probably also raised suspicions were W.E.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes, Margaret Mead, Linus Pauling, Pete Seeger, all of whom in that last list had preached at first Unitarian. 
Importantly, this case of the FBI surveillance of First Unitarian Los Angeles was not isolated. As detailed in other documents acquired through the Freedom of Information Act, a 1969 FBI document discussed open meetings held at First Unitarian of South Bend, Indiana, by the Michigan Committee to End the Vietnam War, which a bureau source claimed was a Communist Party front. So what was going on then is similar to what's going on now with how we legitimately need to be investigating terrorist threats, but uh, suspicions of communism then and terrorism today are often these just wide license to do whatever you want. Another FBI document from 1969 described plans by civil rights leader the Reverend Andrew Young to speak at a dinner at Cedar Lane Unitarian Church right down the road in Bethesda, Maryland. This was just a dinner in memory of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The memo noted that the FBI had alerted the Metropolitan Police Department that this civil rights activist was speaking at this church in memory of MLK, who of course was himself surveilled by the FBI, that they had notified the Metropolitan Police Department, the Secret Service, and, quote, interested military agencies. Now, to be clear, my goal is by no means to overly demonize the FBI, the NSA, or other government agencies who are acting in, when they are acting in good faith to keep us safe, not for the least of which reasons that I couldn't even begin to count the number of UUs who work for the FBI, who work for the NSA, who, so that's of course also true. But security must be balanced against privacy and against government overreach. And this historical background is important for understanding why, when the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Bruce Schneier is on their board of directors, was considering a lawsuit against the NSA on behalf of a coalition of nonprofits and advocacy organizations over the agency's mass collection of Americans' telephone data. This is somewhat we learned after the whistleblowing by Edward Snowden. First Unitarian Los Angeles came to mind as a strong potential plaintiff because of their history. So, uh, First Unitarian Church versus the NSA was born. The latest update I found is that this case seems to be seemingly permanently stalled at the district court level um, due to a number of reasons, not, uh, mostly including the passage of new laws by Congress in the meantime that are strongly on the government's side. So I should also be sure to add that when discussing this topic, the biggest canard that almost always comes up is someone will say, well, if you don't have anything to hide, you don't have anything to worry about, right? That cynical claim is misleading for a few different reasons. In particular, if you have enough data about someone, you can almost always find a reason to get them in trouble. As Cardinal Richelieu said back in the 17th century, show me six lines written by the most honest man in the world and I will find enough reason therein to hang him. Even more fundamentally though, and I can't emphasize this enough, having times and places where we can truly be private and unobserved is a human right necessary for maintaining our dignity. I really think that is a truth that is decreasingly appreciated in such a time as this. Yeah, <laughs> so, so let's be forewarned, right? Uh, but in light of 21st century technology, protecting any sort of genuinely private space, it's really, really hard. We need much more robust laws about our rights to the data that is produced by us and that is produced about us, including some forms of the right to delete, which is sometimes called the right to be forgotten. This, too, can swing the other direction. We've seen some of this in Europe who have done this better than us, but then we see things like public officials doing something they shouldn't be doing and then saying, I claim my right to delete that. So that 
Anyway, this, this is all complicated, right? We need to do this well. And I don't respect we'll ever see a reminder before posting on social media. You know, before you click post, a little bubble should come up that says something like, what you've written will be saved by Facebook and used, by mar- used for marketing and given to the government at, you know, if requested, on demand. Probably never going to see that. But we might be able to attain a greater power to tell certain companies in certain instances, I'm leaving delete all the data you have on me, right? Which with a lot of these companies, it's a lot of data, and they save it all to to try to look for trends. Or I never gave you permission, company, to gather information about me and sell it to others. I want my data out of your database. So we could have more robust laws around that. For now, in Shire's assessment, we're still in the honeymoon phase of connectivity. Governments and corporations are punch drunk on our data. And the rush to connect everything is driven by an even greater desire for power and for market share. But keep your eyes out as we continue to move in the seeming inexorably in the direction of surveillance and security, that end of the spectrum. Note the demand for freedom and piracy may, hopefully, continue to grow. From the perspective of our UU principles, again, our UU first principle of the inherent worth and dignity of every person is violated if there is no real privacy. Our fourth principle of a free search for truth and meaning is, requires privacy from big, bu- big Brother watching every move you make. Though the truth is we don't yet quite have Big Brother. We, Schneider says we have more like a thousand tattletale little brothers is more like what we have right now. And our fifth principle, the democratic process, also requires citizens to have the freedom to organize without the intrusion of the government. I mean, to just take the first example off the top of my head, when we read these incredibly dire reports around climate change and we have a government that's just ignoring it, protecting our freedom to assemble in private is important for strategizing for social change. Just one or two brief things. I talked about John Stuart Mill earlier, and one of his father's best friends was one of his mentors was Jeremy Bentham, uh, famous for inventing utilitarianism, the ethical the, the ethics. But we're not going to talk about that aspect today. Bentham's also famous, just incidentally, for do y'all know this? Like he was stuffed today. He's still like wheeled out. I think it's at the University College of London. Google images later. I swear. This is, they wheel him out in a little wheelchair. It's super creepy. It was part of his will and like what, what, they got a bunch of money, but like still in 2018, like they're wheeling out this 19th century stuffed guy. Uh, but uh, Bentham, the reason I bring him up today is that he had this really uh, creepy idea in thinking about this that now has sort of become this 21st century reality. It's a thing called the panopticon. So pan means all. So you think about like panacea, um, pangea, and opticon like optics, like your optician seeing. So seeing all. So he designed this theoretical prison where where you would have a guard tower at the top that was dark, and so the prisoners would never, and windows on all sides, but you would never know. There's only one guard, but you wouldn't know at any time if a guard was there, which window the guard was looking out of, and that all the cells were open. And so the idea was that you would just behave all the time rather than risk misbehaving. So what we've done in a way way beyond Bentham's worst nightmares is created our own panopticon, right, where we're constantly under surveillance. So uh, if you really want to go into this, um, read Foucault, Michel Foucault's Discipline and Punish. He um, does some really interesting stuff with this. But 
Um, the, one of the thinkers that helps me think about how things could be differently, how we can choose differently, is Wendell Berry. Uh, not that we have to be Luddites or curmudgeons, though um, Wendell Berry is intentionally and unapolo- unapologetically both those things in a wonderful way. Uh, he, I'll never forget his essay called Why I Will Not Buy a Computer. He says, among the many things he says in that essay, is that already with a typewriter, I've written too fast and too much. Uh, but he also says that in, in the age of the chainsaw, one of my neighbors continued to cut his wood with an axe. I allow that man's memory to trouble my thoughts. You know, that just because we can do something doesn't mean we have to. The final thing I'll say is essentially as a society, I think we are, we are in an age here in the early 20th century of technological feudalism where we basically, I, I, I'm not joking when I talk about our Google overlords, like we basically are allowing Google and Apple and Amazon and Facebook to be like these feudal lords and we're just hoping that they that they're good and behave well. And what we need to do is basically what the founders of this country did was to look to John Locke. I mean, the the thing that helped us transition from feudalism into our modern society is what Locke called, what our founders picked up on, the consent of the governed. That's what we're, we need to transition into that, that what we consent to, you know, it's not just, consent is not just about sex, it's about sex, but it's, it's also more generally, right? Consent is a really important thing. We've lost sight of that with our technology at this moment. So going back to that first hymn of Love Will Guide Us, I think our challenge is to continue our journey in love. Love for ourselves, love for one another, to make justice and peace. And whatever glimpse you've had of hope, of love, or peace, that of how we might live differently in this world, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.